In July 2018, NASA hosted the installation Psychoactive Music by Aaron LaBay. In Psychoactive Music, the installation listener wears noise-canceling headphones and an EEG reader in order for the brainwaves of the listener to determine compositional features of the music he or she is hearing. While in South River, Aaron gave an artist talk about psychoactive music and also about the Lucid Creation and Research Project, which evolved from the software uh, made for psychoactive music. The Lucid Project is a member of the Transmedia Zone, an innovative media incubator at Ryerson University. In the audience were some of Aaron's collaborators on the Lucid Project, Gabriella Chiara and Riel Sumpton. Today I am presenting my artist talk here at NASA North uh, Media Arts Centre. I'm Aaron LeBay and I'm a Toronto-based new media artist and I'm here to talk to you about yesterday's exhibition piece, Psychoactive Music. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit about the experimental approach to audio engineering that uh, took to create this project and I'm going to talk a little bit about its history and also where it is kind of developing and growing today. So first and foremost, a little bit more detail. Although yesterday's piece was experienced as a single artwork, um, Psychoactive Music has actually become a larger project, uh, kind of a ubiquitous new, new media piece um, that is uh, essentially designed a set of music protocols um, around enhancing the music listening experience and integrating it, it has integrated itself into public installations, uh, immersive spaces, and now actually an app platform, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. So the project has actually been a full-time endeavor for about three years now, and I'm happy to say that the concept has grown to becoming uh, an actual full-blown studio now, uh, revolving around these concepts, uh, you know, the foundations that we've built, and um, you know, I'll kind of explain more of that as we go. So the project actually had a very humble beginning. It was actually my uh, third year major project for my BFA. Um, to give you a little background, I actually did an audio engineering degree first. Uh, before doing my BFA, so I just kind of carried over the research that I had built from that program into um, my BFA. So the research was a little bit advanced, but I really used you know the the university's um, you know resources and you know the faculty to kind of help develop the project. So it all began with a research question, and the research question was how c how can we modify music um, so it ha so we have the ability to in directly influence brain waves. Um, in a measurable time frame and um, something that's completely non-invasive. So to give you an idea of an invasive brainwave uh, stimulation, there's like electro-stimulation, there's ETNS, and kind of my thesis was could we just use audio, um, you know, and, and optimize the modern music listening experience to actually, you know, you know, help cure the brain or help biohack the brain and allow users to um, reach desired mental states in a measurable time frame as opposed to you know, music therapy or something which could take weeks or months or, you know, something of that nature. So uh, I started with a lot of exhaustive research and um, one day I kind of stumbled upon this article. So this article here um, is a, a, you know, scientific article, something that uh, was done in a medical setting and they found that um, binaural beats, which is an audio phenomenon, was used uh, and they were able to increase um, alpha wave behaviors in the brain um, in small time frames. So, you know, users were experiencing binaural beats for as little as 10 minutes and they actually had a lot of EEG readings that were showcasing um, enhanced activity in the brain. Uh, alpha waves, to give you a little background, are the uh, brain waves associated with relaxation, with, um, you know, with restoration. It's, they're very healthy for people who have anxiety disorders or depression. Um, and these sounds are, you know, the binaural, the binaural beat sounds are very powerful and they're able to actually stimulate these, these brain waves. 
So this was, you know, a huge breakthrough. Although binaural beats had been around for several years, um, it wasn't until 2015 that they actually were able to bring it into the medical setting. And um, these, you know, breakthroughs were made in seeing that it could actually be applied into like a medical experience. So to give you a little, a little explanation of how they work, uh, binaural beats are actually an audio illusion. Um, it, it occurs when you uh, play two frequencies uh, of different uh, hertz ranges in either ear, and the brain actually um, combines those two tones and it perceives a third tone, which is um, inaudible. So for an example, in this case, 10 hertz would not be a sound that we would normally be able to hear. But because we're actually playing two tones of exact same amplitude in each ear, the, the brain, the auditory cortex, perceives this 10 hertz tone. And what that does is um, it actually synchronizes the brain waves with that tone, be being that it's within that range. So brain waves exist within a 2 hertz to 32 hertz frequency range. So, um, and that kind of, th there's behaviors that are associated with that range as well. So 32 hertz is very active brainwave behavior, and 2 hertz is like sleeping, completely unconscious. And um, what, what occurs when you actually are able to play tones that the ears, that the brain can hear within that range is the rest of the brain waves kind of synchronize with it and you're able to stimulate uh, dominant states. So if a user is at 32 hertz, they're very, very active and they're played 10 hertz binaural beats for a long period of time, the brain will eventually sync with that and the user will actually feel calm, they'll feel relaxed, you know, they'll get a lot of physiological effects out of that. So this phenomenon is kind of similar to the combination tone uh, phenomenon, which like, you know, occurs with organs and those types of instruments. You actually hear frequencies that aren't being played. Um, and this is essentially the same thing, but very low frequency. Would so it has, it has to be these particular frequencies? Like, could you have, uh, you know, 330 and... Three yeah, you could. It, it's better, the lower you go, the better it is. Um, being that the brain is perceiving a low frequency, it's better to do... Um, you know, obviously within the auditory spectrum, but something lower end. Mm -hmm. uh, the rule of thumb is it has to be under 1,000. I think that's the rule, otherwise it just doesn't work. Because well, the, 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 the frequencies will smear. Yeah, yeah, well, they'll, they'll smear together. And, and it, it, but like, mm -hmm. I, I find with like 100 hertz to like 300 hertz, you get a really nice, strong uh, vibration out of that. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously you gotta work with your technology. So headphones, uh, you gotta assume consumer grade. So, you know, most headphones like that are consumer grade, sometimes they don't even go lower than like 100 hertz, right? Like, so, um, so I, I tend to like work that, with... That's the happy medium. Yeah, medium. yeah, it's the happy medium that sounds the best, that works on all peripherals and also allows the user to get the most stimulation out of it. Um, now the big problem with these, um, these and other psychoacoustic stimuli that are similar to this is they're not the easiest things to listen to. So, you know, audiophiles like us, you know, will listen to these things leisurely and we don't even care, we like it, right? But most of humanity will listen to these things for a couple brief moments and they'll be tired of listening to it. They'll, you know, it, it's not enjoyable and it actually counteracts the physiological benefits because people, you know, will, will not enjoy it as much. Well, we weren't wired to constant No. Exactly, yeah. Like the human ear just is not really prepared for sine waves <laughs> for just like straight, you know, and, and, hours. Yeah, in right? fact, the animals that use sine tones, like bats and birds and things in their calls, it tends to be for to announce something suddenly yeah. and to get your attention as opposed to uh, actually communicating. Uh, soothing, uh, you know, yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So my biggest, my big challenge in this project was I wanted to get the same effects, the same stimuli in music, um, but completely incognito. Something that people could actually listen to leisurely, you know, on the bus, on the train, in their everyday life, and something that you know our grandmothers would actually enjoy listening to, right? So my thesis was: could we combine this stimuli with 
you know, our favorite music, our, you know, the music that we actually enjoy, that we, you know, have these really nostalgic and powerful relationships with and still get this powerful, you know, effect out of it. So, you know, that's kind of where things started. Um, and this was, of course, not easy. This was a huge challenge um, because most of these tones were not, you know, in key structures or, you know, in, in melodic contours. So, you know, they naturally sounded awful. So it took months and months of tinkering. It took, you know, hundreds of hours in the studio of playing around with, you know, audio processing tools, equalization, um, even spatializing through like 360 spectrums to try to mask these tones within music. But it, it was definitely not an easy process. Um, but eventually, you know, I, I created this algorithm that, you know, did a really great job of tricking the ears, essentially, into not noticing them while still getting the same stimulation out of the user. Um, and this is kind of where my third year project ended, is I created a 360 speaker piece that perfectly masked a 4, four hertz stimulation. But the big problem with that was, I was like, okay, we have, I have it working in five speakers, but now you, know, you can't bring five speakers around with you. My biggest challenge was then to transport that to a headphone experience. And what I found through this research was spatialization was one of the biggest keys to actually masking these tones. When you create a wider spectrum than stereo, you know, the ears focus on like only certain things and you're able to actually hide these tones with like within the spectrum a lot easier um, while still stimulating the brain, you know, in the background. But, you know, my biggest challenge was like, how do I then transport that to headphones, you know, and I also found that, you know, interactivity was going to be important because, you know, somebody who's dominant at 30 hertz and someone who's dominant at 15 hertz, they're going to need different amounts of these stimuli in order to get to these optimized states. So this is kind of where the next step had to be built. So what we ended up doing is I, I was able to eventually, you know, through binaural encoding, get stuff into a headphone feed. And then I started to kind of experiment into other reins, right? So I, I teamed up with some massage therapists. Um, we started to develop the practice into becoming something that could be integrated into other parts of life aside from being in a recording studio. And we got a lot of success through that. We had a lot of really great user experiences. Um, but the next big step was certainly going to be the interactivity. And, um, you know, being that I was in a BFA program, I also had to figure out a way to make this something that would be viable in the gallery, something that would actually, you know, uh, create some sort of spectacle to bring people in so they could really test it on a large audience of people. Um, so this is when, you know, I started to, like, ideate on my fourth year thesis project. And um, eventually this is what I got, which was this, you know, large dome enclosure um, and the piece slash project Lucid began. And Lucid essentially is a, um, a new media um, transmedia project that incorporates psychoactive music in an applied sense. So it takes psychoactive music and it, and it puts it into different aspects of our everyday lives. Um, so I, the first one that I wanted to do was you know, the gallery environment. So I, you know, we ended up creating this large environment that was built around the psychoactive music core that added on a visual stimuli and, you know, this kind of pod to like separate users from, you know, the rest of the gallery and allow people to have these like really intimate experiences. Um, mind you, you know, the process of getting there was, you know, a huge headache. <laughs> um, but the big challenge with Lucid was now to add that level of inter interactivity. So we had the headphones working, we had all of that built in, the music was being masked, everything was really lovely, but the interactivity was a big challenge. And this is when we started to integrate uh, EEG technology, um, utilizing, uh, essentially reading the user's brain and seeing where they are in the spectrum and how much stimuli they're going to need in order to bring them to that optimized state. Um, and that took a lot of programming, a lot of work, uh, some very, very mild artificial intelligence, nothing too intense at this point. 
Um, but that's kind of, you know, this was the package for my fourth year thesis. Um, so there was a lot of challenges along the way. Um, so the, uh, the biggest challenge, of course, was creating this structure so that, you know, I could, like, bring this psychoactive music to the public forum. Um, but aside from that, there was a lot of audio issues that I was still working out as well. So, you know, another, you know, several hundreds and hundreds of hours in the studio trying to figure out how to optimize this experience so that, you know, users could experience it, you know, in headphones, like, to be, like, really, really great while having interactivity, which was difficult because now I had to have modular music, um, non-linear music, which was a huge advancement to my composition practice. I mean, the most composers spend their entire lives working on a timeline, you know, this is from start to finish. Um, so this is really when I was opening up to trying out things in an interactive sense. I was very lucky to be paired up at this point with uh, David Rokeby, who is my thesis advisor, and he is an expert on interactivity with audio, and he really helped shape the project at this point. Um, and he taught me that, you know, like, take the linear aspects out of, you know, an audio experience or any gallery experience, and that really kind of learned or reshaped how I thought about audio and how we compose audio. Uh, now I can't even go back, to be honest. I'm very much like mm -hmm. in this nonlinear compositional, you know, jive. And, you know, it was great. There was a lot of other things that we started to learn at this point too. Uh, one that I, I found was uh, ambience was a big thing that helped with the experiences, um, like nature ambiences in particular. Obviously now that we're working in a binaural soundscape, we had to buy a special microphone. So I ended up using this 3DO microphone. Um, only to learn that there's better ambisonic microphones out there, but... So what was the name of it again? The 3DO, it's called. 3DO? Yeah, um, it's great. It's very, it's very binaural, like it, it removes the need to encode binaurally as well. Um, now I'm trying, like we're trying to get this like ambisonic, full ambisonic microphone, but it's a great unit. I mean, it was also within my thesis price tag at that point, um, but it, it really added a lot to the piece, right? People started to lose themselves a lot easier and um, what, what took 10 minutes to get people into therapeutic states, now we were getting like four, right? Like people were, you know, really in, like getting into these dream states almost um, through these very short experiences. Now, the other issue that we were having is I ended up creating a new tuning structure for psychoactive music because um, I found that 440 was having difficulties getting the stimuli to blend with it. Um, so this new tuning structure, which was very easy to work with in electronic music, so you just reprogram the instrument. But then when we started to use acoustic instruments, it became this massive challenge, right? Like, instead of having to retune a piano that I had no authority over, I couldn't really tell the school to retune this, this piano that other people use, we had to get creative. So, um, as you see here on the right, there's this picture of, like, you know, seen the amount of microphones on this piano, and we essentially did is like sampled the entire instrument, and then on each tone we had, or each key, we had to detune it at a different ratio because they all had to go to different ratios. And I mean, I, I went in very naively thinking that I could just do like a pitch tuner on all of the tones, but you know, each frequency has a different ratio, and so it was, yeah, yeah, it was very, very complicated. Um, I mean, it was great. I like this would have only worked in a university setting because this studio would have cost us like $10,000 for the amount of time that we used it. But it was a great exploration because I learned a lot about how acoustic instruments work. Um, I mean, I think in the future we would love to have like a, an orchestra that we could just permanently, you know, detune. But, um, but it, was, it was really, it was a really enriching experience and we learned a lot through the process. But all of, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the rain that you had in the installation, that yes, yeah, so the rain I was actually recorded at a cottage uh, in Havelock, which is near Peterborough. Um, we, uh, my studio, um, 
like we spent a weekend going over there and like getting all these ambiences. It was a really great experience for for everybody. But I mean, it, it's a nice excuse to go out in nature. Um, but it's also you know recording all of these like the big thing that we do with this project is like I'm a big stickler on samples. We refuse to use samples. We we record everything ourselves. I like to have things at like you know 192 kilohertz mainly because there's a lot of modulation that happens um, after the fact. And I'm trying to avoid the loss of quality. And I, you know, it's really nice to be able to actually record your own ambiences because then you can actually think of it as a part of the composition process, right? Like you can choose, you know, which ones fit which moods. And, you know, I, I mean, that's something that I hope that we continue. Um, and I think that a big issue with people who are making therapeutic music is they, they skip that process. They, they go right to like, I'm gonna buy some samples online and then, you know, deal with that. So I think that I mean, maybe that's just the audiophile in me, but like, I'm, I'm a big stickler on that kind of stuff. And I think every audio engineer really should think that way. Um, so, you know, through this process of, you know, working with all these different instruments and this exploration, you know, it, it just, it took a long time to get everything syncing together. Essentially, this, like a four minute piece took, you know, three months to create. We've now streamlined the process and there's now like protocols that we follow, but the exploration into getting there was, was certainly a long period of time, several months. Um, but eventually, you know, as fate would have it, we finished. Um, so we created the Lucid installation, which now had the, you know, current psychoactive music protocols that you heard uh, yesterday. I mean, we've improved some things since then, but essentially it became a polished algorithm um, and it was integrated into this installation. Uh, we uh, did the meta show, which was like the year end show for Ryerson University. Um, and it was, it went, you know, Great, it was lovely. People had great experiences with it. And what I started to notice through the exhibition process was it, like, I started to feel like psychoactive music became this thing that might grow beyond um, you know, the art space. I found people were saying that they really wanted to use it you know, as a therapeutic tool. Although I was using it for that, like, or I had vision for it to be done that way, it was more of still an art, art statement, right? Like it was more of like a, you know, a statement on mental health and how like we have, you know, how it has become so you know, medicalized and psychiatrized and, and but, but what I started to learn was it, it was a little bit bigger than just an art, artistic statement. I mean, I think art has this lovely way to drive everyday life and, you know, change the way that we live. And I think this was a great opportunity for us to kind of expand past just, you know, the BFA and go into, you know, collaboration. Um, so through the process of building Lucid, we had this really great opportunity to collaborate with a lot of people at the school because this project took a lot of assistance, right? So we had fabrication help, we had people, you know, um, from even other, uh, you know, faculties like engineering come and help us out. And through that process, people have, you know, really were starting to get sold on the vision of what psycho psychoactive music could be. And, um, and this, it kind of allowed for this really nice recruiting process where we were able to kind of build, you know, a really great team. So one thing that we did after, um, after this exhibition or after the meta exhibition was we, um, we, we decided to turn the project into um, an actual studio or a project of sorts and we applied to the um, Transmedia Zone Incubator at Ryerson University. And this incubator um, is solely focused on you know, the creative arts or the creatives you know, space and how that is going to like, be changed in the, in the, next, in the near future and how, how you know, it is evolving essentially. So this space has provi like, provided us with studio space, a lot of you know, resources and here is where we built the Lucid team. And um, you know, I'm really proud to say that through this process, you know, we were able to create our studio, which is today, you know, is called just Lucid. Um, you know, and we're, our our studio focuses on taking the psychoactive music and bringing it into the lives of you know everyday people, and you know how like 
how can we use this to you know to improve the you know mental health landscape and to improve you know the listening the music listening experience in general. Uh, one thing before we continue is uh, we uh, everybody here except for myself, or is it? Are there other people involved? Yeah. So uh, as in the audience today, we have uh, Rial Sumpton. She's our public relations officer, and then uh, Gabriella Kyra. She's our chief designer. Um, we also have Zoe Thompson, who is our chief scientist, and we have a, our like a graphic designer and several like we have a couple installation artists that we work with just for exhibits, and then a couple other research staff as well. So we have a total of eight full like office members. Um, there's yeah, there's one business guy in there too, Flavi. He uh, helps keep us. And so what, what pays for all this to happen? So um, a lot of grants. Um, we we were, like through this process, so we were. You guys are applying for those grants yourself? Yeah. Or the, or the university? Um, it was a little bit of both. So the university has given us a lot of support, being that we're through the incubator. They they essentially help us, like, we're eligible for a lot of grants that you wouldn't have been if you weren't part of the incubator. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, there's a lot of Canadian funding that has been, like, funneled into these university incubation, in incubation centers. Um, so that has given us funding. We have also had a lot of larger exhibits, which have been, um, like, highly profitable in terms of uh, payment, um, which I'll go over in a little bit. Um, we still do a lot of smaller um, installations and stuff as well, um, mainly because we have funding and we're able to accommodate that. Um, but larger museums have allowed us to kind of prosper in a, in a higher level as well. Um, and now that we're actually going into the mobility space, we're starting to get interest from investors and um, other stakeholders and people like that. So what is the mobility So like uh, we're, we're working on building an application for this, a mobile app, uh, something that people could okay. um, essentially do psychoactive music at home or in any setting. Um, and um, you know, there's a lot of like social impact uh, funders who are really interested in, in, in helping us with that process because of the mental health landscape in, in general, essentially. Um, like one of the places, like our main uh, office space is the Center of Social Innovation in Toronto. And um, they, like their whole thesis is to, you know, help companies that have an impact to, you know, potentially change the way that we live in a positive way. Um, and we get a lot of support through that and a lot of, you know, resources and funding is uh, accessible through that as well. Um, but yeah, pretty much solely, I'd, I'd say most of our funding has come from government grants. We got Ontario Art Council funding, um, a bunch of other like Ontario government funding, um, and that kind of uh, build essentially. Um, so we're actually yeah, we're all get, we're all getting paid. I mean, it's minimum wage, but we're all getting paid, which is great. <laughs> and um, yeah, and we have a lot of support. I mean, Toronto, you know, although you know, it is exhausting and it's nice to be up here because it's such a nice natural environment. Um, there is a lot of resources there for us um, and we probably couldn't exist if it wasn't for that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's essentially where we are now. Um, you know, through the process of uh, like post-thesis, we started to exhibit Lucid in a lot of different settings. Um, so this here is actually Maker Festival in Toronto, which was a really great experience for us. Um, you know, like going, like the Maker environment was really great. There's a lot of people who we're really into audio and really into you know these cool maker projects, and we got a lot of support that way. Um, but what actually came, what was a big breakthrough for us in terms of fin like financial stability was we got our first commissioned uh, exhibition, which was the Night Shift exhibition in Kitchener. It's a festival, um, and they paid us quite well. Uh, they they were really intrigued by our, by our project. They had a lot of funding for from Canada 150. I think that was like where they got a lot of their funding. And, um, and they paid us uh, handsomely to bring the exhibit to Kitchener, set up there, 
um, and we were there for the full two-day festival. Um, and here, we got, uh, they, they actually did a reception, I think a couple months earlier, to announce all of the exhibitions. And there was a reporter from CBC who was there, and um, this is actually when we got our first national press coverage. So um, they heard the they heard about our project, and they actually gave us a call, and they invited us into um, to CBC Kitchener, and we did a live demo of Lucid um, or of psychoactive music on the air, um, which was great. I mean, that was it was a really fantastic experience for us, and then like the host like had some really lovely things to say about it. Um, but then after that, we started to get you know this huge influx of emails and. People, you know, really lovely stories. People who are, you know, had children with ADHD or people who had anxiety disorders, um, and you know, even a woman who was going through, um, you know, a second stage of cancer. You know, they were like they, they were really identifying with the concept of of just being able to listen to some music to try to help them relax a little bit, even if it was just for a short moment of time. Um, so because of that, the turnout at this festival was huge. Like we we were fully booked, um, you know, very early on in in, in each day. Um, you know, we had tons of users, like all of our best photos are of the users from Kitchener. They, they loved it. Like we had great experiences with them. Um, and this kind of really kicked it off for us. Uh, after this ex exhibition, we, you know, we started getting calls from different exhibitors. Um, you know, we did a TEDx event, um, which was a pretty big deal for us. They paid well as well. Um, Ryerson University hired us to represent them at a, at a variety of events. Um, and then our you know, this really led up to this pivotal exhibition for us, which was at the Ontario Science Centre. So the Ontario Science Centre was running this um, inventorium exhibit, uh, they were calling it, which was essentially a space where children could co-create experiences um, related to science. They really liked ours because, um, you know, they were essentially, you know, remixing music with their brain. And, and it also, you know, kind of spoke to this whole movement to educate children on mental health at a young age and try to get them to have positive relationships with their mental health. Um, being that we all grew up in a, you know, world where it was very, you know, shunned or there was a lot of stigmas around it. So, um, so we were really open to the idea of, you know, being this exhibi exhibition to kind of promote positivity around this. Um, and uh, it was also, you know, a great thing for our studio. It really helped us out a lot. Um, we also did a, it was our first custom build for, uh, for a museum. We actually created a couple exhibits on the side, um, which were completely focused on audio. They were really pushing like psychoacoustics and like us teaching people about the sound related to audio and you know, how it works. So, um, so we spent a lot of time building educational materials, which was really exciting for me as an audio engineer to be able to, you know, push out some knowledge surrounding audio. Cause I feel like a lot of people just listen to music and don't really think about the acoustics and the, you know, the, the science behind it. Um, but yeah, it, the, through that process, it really helped us, you know, kind of uh, build us as a studio and also build our, you know, the psychoactive music uh, construct. Um, through this exhibition, we engaged with, I think it was like almost 2,000 people came through the, through the couple of days. We had 300 direct users, being that it was a time-based piece, and we can only do so many. Um, but it was great. It was really good feedback for us. When did that happen? So that was early this year, so January 2018, yeah. So not too long ago. Um, so, you know, this is when we started to realize, you know, that the experience was, you know, even becoming beyond, you know, exhibitions and, you know, the space. We started to brainstorm on how people could start to use Lucid in, um, you know, in a personal setting. Because we got a lot of demands uh, from people saying, you know, how can I bring this home? How can I, you know, hold on to this and actually listen to it, you know, in my living room? Um, so this is when the big design came to uh, create an app. Uh, you know, 
as much as like everyone's making an app these days, like obviously, you know, there's a lot of things that I was against making an app. I think it was just the BFA thing. Like, you know, all of like our art teachers were always against, you know, mobile platforms for some reason. But I, I, you know, I kind of put that at the door just because like, I think the audience is the most important thing. And I think a lot of uh, academics forget that. <laughs> so, uh, so this is when, you know, we started to realize we have to take this really large experience and we wanted to condense it into a phone. Um, and you know, this is kind of what we've been working on for the last few months, which is going to be the Lucid app. Um, and it has come with a slew of challenges, uh, mainly computationally, uh, like Lucid became a full AI system, which it has now grown to, and running all that on a phone is becoming a challenge. Um, and also the audio quality, I mean, I was very liberal with large size files and all of these things, and so now I'm trying to figure out you know, ways of, uh, of readjusting that but essentially you know we're on this really exciting space to be taking psychoactive music and you know to the next level something that can you know connect with a lot of people and um, you know something that we can spread to as many people as possible now the other big thing that we've been learning through this process is people identify with a lot of different music right um, so the traditional psychoacoustic or psychoactive music that we've been building since you know the last three years has been very slow very relaxing you know, because we just, you know, you have this assumption that when people want to relax, that's how they want to do it, right? But um, we've been finding that, you know, we'll have a couple of kids here and there coming to our exhibitions who are like, well, I like heavy metal, right? So, so those people, you know, have been this really interesting challenge that we've been playing around with. And um, what I've decided to do, and I think is the, the best route of entry there, is instead of trying to compose music that I'm not able to compose, we've been collaborating with a lot of different musicians. So the psychoactive music construct has become now a protocol, essentially, that um, we've been able to apply to, you know, different, different artists and different musicians, and it's, it's now almost like a, you know, like, a, a, like an algorithm or a standard, as opposed to it being just a single piece of art, which has been an interesting journey, I guess, through the process, because, you know, through New Media, when I studied that at Ryerson, like, that's kind of how they were teaching it to us, like, in the sense of, like, art is become this ubiquitous thing that is like all around us, right? Um, and it was such a hard concept, an abstract concept as a, you know, an undergrad to try to think of art that way. But it's really starting to click in now, this, this concept of, you know, it, it, you know, there's so many different art worlds or different spaces where art can exist. And, um, you know, and that's kind of where I guess we are. And um, I, uh, yeah, the, the presentation I wanted to keep a little bit short. I wanted to open up to a Q&A or, you know, more of a conversation, but essentially that's kind of, yeah, oh, that's, that's, well, that's just a great, yeah, very great summary of the whole process. Great. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, yeah. You've covered it quite well, I think. Just an interesting thing throughout the whole process of development and um, my side is the design of it and being there from the beginning, really seeing, following what the users wanted, really listening to all of our users and in public installations to get a whole slew of people and just paying attention <laughs> and evolving. And, and so from the beginning, we've always been user-centered, even um, through the evolution of our app. And it's we're constantly having eyes and ears on it because we want it to, to truly help people. So it's been interesting how from the get-go, it's always just that's, that's how it went through mm -hmm. the evolution of our users. And we really we listened and, and it's, it's been going quite well for us, so. Yeah, I think, um, do you want me to turn this around? Yeah. So I think she, she makes a really good point because like, um, I think there's a lot, like a few schools of thought around art and like I've heard throughout my studies. And um, 
like some artists believe like you make art as a statement from yourself and that like it's not designed for the audience and you know the audience comes to you and then I've heard like you know the other end too where people you know create art for experience right and interactivity is an interesting thing because you want an interactive piece to be something that you know people co-create right um, so yeah it, it was interesting and actually Gabby um, yeah she was the only one on the team who was there literally from the get-go um, she was even one of the through the installation yeah and even before that she was one of the massage therapists that I was collaborating with and um, so yeah she's kind of seen the, the evolution <laughs> truly yeah so it seems to be that the, sh the focus has shifted with the app from what you wanted to make musically to what the audience wants to hear yeah I mean like I'm still um, more to that yeah time. so I am um, like a lot of people respond very well with the music that I compose for psychoactive music um, and that's all that's gonna be there it's always gonna be there um, but what I started to find is like you know at a certain point something grows beyond you know what like what it's was just yours right like this began as my project as my composition as my concept um, but eventually, like, if you want it to be something that is actually going to help people, you have to kind of give up some of that ownership, right? Or you have to recognize that some people aren't going to like your work, right? Mm -hmm. They like, you know, the theories that you've created. They, they like the concepts that you've created, but they might not, not like the actual content, right? And um, that definitely was not an easy thing to do, I think. Um, you know, as, as composers, too, it's hard to to accept that some people just don't like your work, <laughs> or as an artist in general. Um, but I think that like it's it's very rewarding to me to know that you know something that I still had a part in creating is, is helping somebody, even if it's somebody else's music, right? Well, I, th I think there's a certain analogy to um, John Chowning, who developed uh, FM synthesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he developed it as a necessity for a piece, and mm -hmm. then, or at least I think that's under my understanding. Uh, and then it became a you know a thing that the university could you know that they kind of were able to kind of present to Yamaha and they developed mm. the the DX7 synthesizer right. so uh, which kind of changed um, you know the nature of synthesizers at the time mm. so uh, um, but there's this analogy where you've created the um, architecture you could say mm. that in which others can operate yeah uh, maybe there's a you know, a, a way that others can make music for it and things mm. like that, like you mentioned. Um, so I think it's just a different focus, yeah. but, but, uh, but, as e but just as important. Totally. Maybe yeah. more so. It's, it's a different mm. feeling for sure, but um, I think it's a great thing. I mean, like, I, I think any, you know, any way that somebody can, you know, take something that you've created and even if it's remixed and changed, um, it's still, you know, still positive, right? I think. I don't know. It's like, um, like you know, when you think about remixing or like you know, remix culture, right? There's this whole like, there's you know, the school of thought is like, no, you should, you're not allowed to take my music and change it. And there's a school of thought that's like, well, you're creating something beautiful with it, right? Um, got a little input. Every time that it wakes up, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, just around me does it. Um, yeah, so I, I think I think it's a good thing. I mean, I've I've definitely grown to be very pleased with the fact that even somebody would be interested in utilizing protocols that I've created and making music with it. Um, mm -hmm. It's exciting a lot of musicians. Like there's a, this one girl that we're collaborating with right now who's very excited to make music this way. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's definitely something that I'm very humbled and I feel very good about. Mm -hmm. um, and even though it's not my music, like it's, I, you, you know, you gotta like accept that, you know, it's just... So are they, are they making a, 
a four-minute piece as if they're making it for a film or whatever, or is there, um, or are there certain constraints that they? Have yeah. To so this artist, she's actually creating something from scratch um, using the protocols that I've outlined. Um, but like other artists, I think what we're going to be doing is they will be sending us pieces that fit certain guidelines, and then we'll be doing the engineering to make it make it fit within the protocols. But um, I mean, there are certain things that just won't work, um, so we, we have those rules. But um, but a lot of artists are excited about the concept of creating for, uh, like the way she saw it is that there was no other way to do it. She wanted to create something specifically for this mode, right? Mm -hmm. This modality. Um, she just was like, well, no, I'm not. I can't give you an existing piece. I mean, if, if this is for meditation music, I want to create yeah. a, you know. So like, yeah. so I think it's we're gonna get a little both. Um, a lot of but like the artists who are really you know creative and really into the idea feel like they're just gonna enjoy the the concept of creating content or even like remixing their own content um, because uh, it, I mean it is it you know it is a different space. I think if I was a composer externally, I'd probably want to be the same. Um, mm -hmm. but so what are the constraints or like what are the yeah so um, so like an example maybe. Or yeah, an, an example is like you need a lot of low end um, with with these with these protocols. Like you need a really healthy, um, you know, at like like low mid range needs to be full. Um, I find stuff that's very twangy, and that doesn't have a lot of low end is very difficult to work with. Um, you can just hear all of the this like the stimulation. Um, so there has to be a very like beefy mix. Um, it also like we have to we have to at the very least have stems so that we can um, do the spatialization process, um, and um, yeah, and I mean generally speaking, stuff that isn't um, like it can be very upbeat, but it, like tempos I think that are over like one eighty are very difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. um, like we can have intense music, but it can't be stuff that's like extremely fast. I find that for some reason like the audio processing that goes along with all of the like the stimuli just like it sounds. Like a jumbled mess. Um, mm -hmm. That's what we've found so far. I think there's going to be other rules. Way, this has to do with the way the brain processes. Yes, yeah, because it's all about the already produced. Exactly, it's all it's all through psychoacoustics, right? It's all about like you know the psychology of how we ingest sound. Um, you know, thank God that <laughs> that's like a universal thing. I think like otherwise this wouldn't be possible. But the brain processes music the same way, um, and that's kind of what has allowed us to leverage these um, you know these tones and, and make it you know something that people can listen to in an, an incognito way um, you know so people like and, and like we've had the whole range of demographic you know in age try the experience which is great so we know that you know even elderly people or even young people like respond to it the same way um, so we know it's working it's just like you know we're very still very reserved on what's what type of music that we're taking in because we're trying to make sure that it doesn't break the, the protocols right I was wondering if you could describe the difference in the experience um from listening on headphones versus listening with the speakers or studio? Yeah, so um, it's actually a lot better in headphones. Um, the big problem with the speakers was unless you were in the optimal position, um, like you'd, you'd lose a lot of the stimuli. Um, so, I mean, although the speakers is a really cool experience because you don't have anything attached to you. So I think that was one of the benefits of having it in, in like a, a speaker piece. Um, but that would have to be a gallery piece. It would have to be a piece where like only one user sits in this exact same spot. Headphones just make it more um, versatile and able to, you know, move around. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it allows multiple users to do, do it simultaneously. Um, like we're, we're, we've designed a multi-user experience that'll allow for thirty people to have like. Right. I guess you have places. multiple computers. Yeah. Multiple systems. Multiple systems. I mean, we could actually uh, do it on this. Like, as long as your CPU was powerful enough, you could do it on the same system. Um, mm -hmm. It would just have to be um, like a multi-track 
uh, like mixer attached to it essentially. Um, but it's possible, and I think that's how we would do it. Um, I mean, that's that's pending Canada Council funding. We'll see if we get that. But, <laughs> but I think that's like a, that's one of the installations that we want to build next is like a big multi-user experience, something that like a group meditation almost, um, where everyone's getting the unique experience, but in a shared setting. Um, right. But yeah, I think headphones just allow for a lot more um, opportunity to, yeah. to play around. Um, and like, there's so many tools for like ambisonic encoding these days, like um, that gives us audio engineers a lot to play with. Um, and that's- Yeah, that's I think you can get the same specificity with, with yeah. a very economical way. Yeah, yeah, without having a whole like 5.1 studio. And because you're right? dealing with mobile platforms plus or personalized installations mm -hmm. uh, then you the headphone experience is fine yeah you're yeah. doing it for uh, the uh, concert of right people or something. yeah I mean I do I, I, I want to go back to speakers at some point um, just for fun like I'd love to do like a, a gallery piece where you know, have a whole speaker array mm -hmm. um, well there's certainly in Europe um, residencies you can do in places where they've got uh, very large systems that mm -hmm. are um, uh, basically a spherical design with uh, many, many loudspeakers and yeah. a ambisonic um, um, encoding at That's very high yeah. level. Um, so that can create a, um, you know, the resources are there to mm, create to do that. What, you're, yeah. what you're experiencing with the headphones without yeah, having okay. to um, put together that system. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at least to try it and to do mm. work with it. Um, so there's a lot of systems. In fact, there's also um, at McMaster, uh, and David Ogburn is putting together a, um, they call them um, uh, high density loudspeaker arrays. Mm, so okay. you look up HDLA. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on a smaller level, uh, Doug Van Nord at York University is also. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of um, good things about McMaster. I haven't like tried yeah. to collaborate with anybody there, but I heard they have uh, a, David Ogburn. Yeah, okay. person to talk. Yeah, up. But, uh, yeah I know Montreal. They're has still building too. the system. And yeah, it'll be another year probably before it's done. Things yeah. are are really are flying yet, but yeah. it's not, it's in the works. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah, thanks for the tip. I'll have to check um, that out. Uh, what's yeah. Oh, okay, thank you. It's good. So, what's your role in uh, publicizing? <laughs> to, to take notes, but more than yeah. Um, I originally started doing um, like outreach, writing, and grants, copy editing, mm -hmm. um, that type of thing. So, yeah, much of the the awards and grant side of things. Yeah. And as we've moved past that, I am doing outreach for the musicians, um, part of the public relations side of things, communicating with. Know, clients and various advisors and things like that. So this is both the app and for the installation yep. exhibits as well. Yeah. yeah. So actually, yeah. she would have um, the most applicable job if uh, in, in like for any setting. Whereas like um, you know we'll have developers that are solely on the app side or installation artists solely on that side. She's like one of the people who we would need on either side because um, yeah like uh, she's done a lot in terms of like most of our grants and you know that has all been kind of yeah. written. I like. I, the thing with as an artist, like we have to be good writers too, and I'm just not a good writer. So like it's That's you know. My yeah. That's uh, good. Well, it's really good that you're able to pull together people with different expertise. Totally. Yeah. Uh, no, it helps. Amazing. It helps being part of Ryerson because um, you can become a team member in a, one of the various incubators and be teamed up with teams, and you know they they need your skills, mm -hmm. but you're not necessarily an artist or. Mm -hmm. um, 
can yeah, be artists, but I, I think it's a good opportunity across the board, right? Like, I mean, Ryerson, yeah. If it wasn't for that, I think I, like I've always been a, a art, artist who likes to practice collaboration, like in its extent. Um, I don't like to work alone, so I think Ryerson was a nice playground for us because we all got to work together and. So uh, they, they're they're really trying. They're tr they're trying to make it you know a, like a premier media art school, um, and that's uh, and I think that's well, great. But well, you know it's really exemplary what you guys did. Thanks. So it's, yeah. uh, it. it's really really uh, quite an achievement, and with a great future ahead of it. So yeah, we'll yeah, we'll see. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah. So point. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I know. Uh, our audience is small, but it was great for me to see it and to share. That, well, it was great know, to be here. With, uh, I mean, like my contacts, yeah, in, which yes. you know aren't always the people that are here, right? Uh, so. Well, there's um, I mean, you guys have a, an immense history too, right? And I kind of wanted to at least see it, right? Because <laughs> like, uh, like we've yeah, heard of like. I was yeah, I was doing research into places we could exhibit, and I said, oh, you know, this is a perfect place and yeah. I said oh they contacted us already you know? yeah yeah no so it's like weird. like yeah. a, a lot of our profs are actually people who you've you know you have worked with and stuff like Louis mm -hmm. Kay and you know David, David, like David Rokeby and like and Laurie and Dixon. yeah 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 so like all of these people like we like you know I always heard about through our schooling so I was like you know when I saw this application I was like oh well, you know, it's interesting. I think you might be the first student we've had. Uh, really? If you want to call it that, is uh, that's come through that system. Interesting. Uh, yeah. That I that I that I recall. I, I, um, yeah. Unless Lewis trained there before, but no, I think it was like, did, all of them. They all came from other. All of them came through OCAD. I think what happened was is uh, Ryerson's program is actually very new. Mm -hmm. um, what happened was is a lot of these professors were were displeased with OCAD and how OCAD was doing. Um, new media, uh, mm -hmm. essentially like yeah. like media arts in general, mm -hmm. um, being that it was a very traditional art school. So they actually created the program at Ryerson for this purpose because Ryerson had a really big media production school, like radio and television. Well, the way, it, yeah. Um, and uh, through that, they they saw the resources were there, and the school is very open to having um, an art like a BFA program there, right? Mm -hmm. So we have like Lila Pine, Kathleen Perry Adams, David Rokeby, all these people like were the founding people of this program. Um, and it's their vision to essentially create something for people like us, you know, and, and through, you know, your, all of your colleagues to create something that they would have wanted, essentially, as, as undergrads, right? Well, and, this um, is great, because yeah. uh, I've been complaining all my life about yeah. the lack of uh, education, education for yeah. people in the field. That's in Toronto. You know? Yeah. And it's always been, we lose people a lot, because they, they, they don't have a, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, they don't have the academic basis here. Mm. That, and... You know, the the basically the universities are what the church was for Renaissance music, yeah. and mm -hmm. what the you know what the court was for Mozart, and yeah. mm -hmm. you know, and so on, and the you know, so um, you know the period, you know, the period of kind of private help. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Beethoven enjoyed the very short bit. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> you know, um, so the universities have kind of. Yeah, picked up the ball actually. Well, um, one thing that's really a big, well, big change that's happened recently is um, Kathleen Perry Adams, who is a curator, but she's a curator for New Media. I don't know if you're familiar with who mm -hmm. she is. Yeah. Um, well, she's just been appointed the chair of the entire School of Media at Ryerson. Um, so she's actually really changing to be more artistic. Like she's building um, like a media arts gallery on the campus and 
becoming a, a really well-known program as well. Like it's now, like you have to have a really great portfolio to get in. You know, some of the best artists in the country are applying to it, like student artists. Um, so it's, it's, it's on the rise, I think. Um, I mean, I, uh, I would love to see by the time that I'm like teaching age, you know, to see like that school, you know, be thriving in that, in that mm -hmm. sense, or even a couple more universities in Toronto do it. Because I think Toronto has great resources to become like a, a better art city, but I just think it's like, it's still working on it, right? I think it's just yeah. like, it's, it's too, uh, it's very industrial, uh, very like, co like commercial, um, mm -hmm. but it would be nice to see it be a little bit more like Montreal, because I, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, some galleries and stuff, but, uh, but yeah, so cool. thank you well, for thank having you. us, this You're was, welcome. was yeah. great, yeah. Cool, I, uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely.